Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm here with Michael Jan, a designer who's had a very interesting history and is doing a number of houses at the moment. Welcome, Michael Jan. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> Michael, you studied architecture at RMIT. Yes, that's correct, yes. Why didn't you proceed with architecture? Well, I studied at the course at the time with a three-year full-time and three-year part-time course. And with a three-year part-time, we had to work out in a practice. So probably my first practice that I worked in was with uh, an industrial designer called George Crowell. And he was a complete modernist, um, brought up in the Cabusier style. Um, he was so generous with his time and his knowledge, he actually really taught me about design. Those were the days when um, when you had to do signage, you used um, um, stick-on letters. You did call letterset. You didn't have graphics from a computer to actually do it. So, And there's, when you're doing a word, you have to get the spacing right between mm. the letters to make it look... Yeah you know, balance. And, you know, I remember spending a whole day on getting one word right. And, and you know, he literally taught me this and paid me, you know, for doing it, you know. So I learned a lot from George. Um, I then worked for George for about a year and a half and then went to work for Daryl Jackson in my three-year um, sort of work and study period. In the 70s? 80s? Yeah, in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, during the 70s. Um, in fact, it was probably... Um, late 60s, early 70s, yeah. So, um, and in the three years, uh, when I was working with Daryl, he was very kind to me too because um, he let me take two months off or three months off and I'd go travelling. And um, with these travels, I went to um, London, which is was at that time where everyone would go. They'd take their first trip overseas and it would, would be to London. And I just fell in love with Habitat, which was... Um, Terence Conrad. Terence Conrad's, yeah, furniture store and homeware store. Um, and what was it about Terence? Mm. What was he doing? What it was Well, it? it was about the simplicity of design. Everything was functional and pure. Um, the And it's where George Crowell actually taught me um, design. He, his work was functional and pure. Daryl Jackson's work at the time was very um, was functional as well. It was expression of, of materials, of shapes and forms mm -hmm. to do a job. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very much part of the 60s. You know, it, was, it was a design revolution of sorts. So what happened? Um, well, I used to spend my days in Habitat and... I sort of thought, gee, I'd really like to open up a shop. This is just so nice, you know. And I um, I actually went around to every product and I wrote down the names of every manufacturer under each cup, sauce or glass, whatever in I could find. In the Habitat store. In the Habitat store. And then I'd go back to my um, room, which I was renting, and I'd write off to all these different suppliers around the world saying that I wanted to open up a shop in Australia and I saw this product in Habitat. Would you supply me? So, well, um, she had no store. I didn't have a store. No, well, I had. There's no way of me opening a store at that time. I just thought it'd be a lovely thing to do. Um, then, when I eventually did get back to Australia, I went back to work for Daryl, and it was a time when um, work was a little bit scarce, so I was retrenched. Um, I'm not sure if I was retrenched because of work or because we were very noisy. <laughs> um, and then I thought, well, what am I going to do? And um, I thought, well, look, I'm going to open up a shop. What and, was that called? And the shop was called House. 
Which is and still running today. Which is still going today, yes. I sold out in the mid-80s to two people, and they sold out, I think, fairly recently. They turned it into a franchise operation. But my shop um, was... Uh, the first shop was in um, Ligon Street, and it was down there, Toto's Pizza. Now, at that time, Ligon Street was pretty dry and dead anyway. And being down near Toto's Pizza during the day... Um, there was hardly any people at all. And you had all those wonderful products from London. I had products from all around the world. Um, but, what, ironically, they were mostly purchased from agents in Australia at the time uh, because I sourced all these people and took them into what supply. What type of things, Michael? Well, there was um, Arsberg dinnerware and... Um, uh, you know, Rustica, the old brown china, which was very popular in those days, uh, director's chairs, um, plastic objects, um, all, all sorts of different things, lots of cookware mm-hmm. from France and so on. And what were um, you, what to get into the house store in those early days, mm-hmm. what were you looking for? Just things that were different or things you hadn't, you know, seen well, before? Or? I, I come from, my mind, mind is a little bit functional. So it essentially was, it had to have a reason. And what I, why I liked it, uh, habitat was that it had a reason for being. It was a supply of everything for the house. Now, my dream of a habitat, which was be, you know, thousands of square metres, and to mine, which was sort of about 20 square metres, was a bit, <laughs> big difference. <laughs> and my budget, you know, the amount of money I had to spend on product was very, very minimal as well. And also, the market in Australia was so much smaller than what you had in London. So, you know, all those... You know, those things that affected the type of shop that it was. Michael, even though it was a very small shop, 20 mm. square metres, you're saying it did actually have considerable impact on um, people at the time. Well, at that, well, um, at that time it was a very small shop and we had very, we, we really didn't have a big turnover. Um, it wasn't until a bigger shop came up for rent in the main part of the shopping centre, which was next door to Grinders Coffee Shop, that I thought, will I da- dare I move my shop into that big space? Because the rent was $200 a week and I was mm. paying $30 a week. Mm. Anyway, I decided to do make the leap and it was get work, moving from a space of 20 or 30 you know, square metres to one which was 150 to 200 square metres, a big difference. And we moved all our stock up in cars. I had an Alfa Romeo and a friend of mine had a Triumph. My father had a Fairlane. So we transported all the stock from one shop to the other um, cutting a long story short, we opened the doors and we sold out of absolutely everything in the first day. What year are we talking about, Michael? Um, it, look, I can't remember. It would have been about 75, right. probably around then, yeah. So you sold up. You had enough of homewares? Um, look, I did it for um, probably 12, 13 years. I had um, opened up a number of other venues in between. I had... Um, a um, cafe called the Faraday Cafe with architect Peter Williams and his wife Judy Williams um, and that was really a great experience um, We, Peter Williams and I also had a card company where we made three dimensional cards um, which have really, you know, didn't really make a mark but um, they were quite um, advanced for the time um, the idea was that you'd get something flat in the mail mm-hmm. and when you pulled something something three dimensional would pop out so we had one of our famous cards with a birthday cake. It was the size of a record um, folder. And when you pulled the, 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 a tab down, a three-dimensional cake dropped out, which was two tiers and birthday candles and so on. And why do you think it didn't work? Um, probably Postage. a bit advanced. Uh, advanced. It was probably expen- too expensive because of a lot of labour in assembling them. Yeah. Um, 
the printing company that um, in, that asked us to do the range for them, it was Owen King, and they did a fabulous job in marketing it. They spent thousand, you know, probably the equivalent of a hundred or two hundred thousand today in producing the product and marketing mm. it, um, selling the products all around Australia. But we just couldn't get it off the ground. Oh, it's a shame. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so you went. Back to architecture? Um, not no, not not, not immediately. No, I opened up a shop called HomeKit, which was a furniture store, yeah. um, and I was a little bit tired of retail. But I, that's all I knew. And what at did the time. HomeKit do? HomeKit, we imported furniture from Brazil and from um, Sweden, basically, um, and that didn't really do that well. Um, so we started selling pieces of found furniture from the Philippines, and that did do well. Um, and then after that, there was the recession, so I closed with the recession. 81? Yeah, the 81 recession. Or, no, 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 91 recession. Oh, okay. Yeah, 91. Um, and then I opened up a shop called Handworks, which was a craft and supply store. Um, Chapel Street? Uh, no, a commercial road right opposite Eckersley. And I used to do all the windows. Um, I was in partnership with Ivana Perkins and Robbie Perkins, who are jewelers and artisans. Mm. Um, and we did really well with it. Um, we used to sell, you know, raw materials right through from beads right through to flower, you know, sorry, plasters for making moulds and so on, and resins and papers for decoupage. We ran classes, and with all the product, I used to make do all the windows, which is three dimensional, you know, models of things. And at that time, an old friend of mine, Stephen Bennett, asked me to help Country Road, who he was the director of, um, asked me to help do their visual merchandising. So mm. I was getting tired of handworks and I moved on to help Stephen. Um, and during that time I started designing their homeware shops. Mm. Um, and that's when I started actually doing architecture again. Okay. Mm. Tell me about the experience of doing retail after so long. It must have been quite strange. You mean in terms All of... All retail fit-outs and... Of doing fit-outs. And well, merchandising and... Well, look, it, it, there is a learning curve. I mean, when you're a retailer, it's a big difference to actually designing for retail. When you're a retailer, you actually want to do everything as economically as possible to get the best effect. When you're a designer, you actually have to think of um, um, the idea. You can't let dollars really interfere with creativity. I think you've got to be able to split the two. And then once you've got an idea, you've got to then work out how to make that idea work yeah. and get the essence of that idea within a, within a budget. So that was a bit of a, um, um, an interesting experience for me at the time. Well, starting off with Country Road, they, they had very good shop fitters and they had high expectations of their interiors, so the budgets were good. But then when I started doing work for mainstream retailers, um, like the Colorado shops and Jag and so on, that that changed that changed quite dramatically because they were very were very much budget budget conscious yeah but they also wanted design as well because their labels were about design where to after that michael um well after that i recently um or about 12 years ago um working with steve on uh, george's which was unfortunately the new george's, the new george's which didn't work out so well um, why do you think that was um I think probably um, it's it's really difficult. It's, it's very layered. I think there were ex there were too many people who regarded it as being the old Georges and the re revived Georges. I, I think it should have almost be a different. It name should altogether. have been a different name. I, I actually think it should have started off as one floor, 
Whereas, you know, we, Steve opened up the whole building. Um, and that's the big call um, in today's market, in a very niche market. Because when you look at um, niche um, retailers like Country Road, they're, they're all aiming for a very small percentage. They're not a broad market like may, maybe Witchery is or, you know, one of the other, Cotton On. They're different, they're different you know, market levels. Um, and I think George has always had that very small market niche. And having those overheads and that sort of product was... It was also bad timing from memory, the opening was... Probably was a bit, yeah. You could say everything was a bit wrong, unfortunately, yeah. for it. Yes. But it was, um, you know, it, it was designed by... Con- the, the interior was designed by Conran, and um, I think... Um, I just think it was really overkill. It's like giving, having a dinner party and having too much food, right. you know. Do you think something like that could succeed now? Um, no, I don't think so. Not now. No, because I think it's the market, Melbourne, or just because the I, I retail is so difficult. Yeah, I think the markets change even more dramatically. Um, I think also being uh, shopping online is different. You know, mm. it's dispersing the dollar. Um, I think people want the experience. They need the experience. You know, there's nothing like but the not touch four field. Floors. But yeah, like I don't think the four floors work. Michael, you started designing for people like. Um, uh, Costa Boda retail stores. Yeah, that was one of my first clients, and the connection there was that I used to buy product from Orifice Costa Boda for house, and um, the person I used to buy it from was a girl called Anne Sullivan, and uh, she was a, little, a salesperson in those days, and we got on very well, and she eventually is now the one of the, the director of Orifice Costa Boda in Australia. Um, so we've had a long term relationship, and. Um, um, the, she, fit, well, the fit out's still there. If you go into the block arcade, you'll still see there. Michael Jan's <laughs> lovely fit out. Well, it's a little bit tired, and I, I actually think it's about to be redesigned because with all the um, structural changes of the company in um, in um, um, Denmark, I think that they have an English designer, and they're rolling out the stores throughout the world based on that design. Um, the, most of their fixtures are made in China because it is, you know, very much cost-driven as well. Um, so um, they, I think, they're refurbishing that store now. When we did their office Costa Boda store, they were selling lots of art glass as well as um, George Jensen. Now it's more more of a George Jensen store than anything else. You made the return full time to architecture, working mm-hmm. with um, as one of the directors of Jam Architects. Yes. What was that like, coming back to architecture full-time? Well, it started off as a completely different experience. It didn't feel like architecture because Stephen Bennett, who was you know, the, um, the founder of Country Road, said Let's, uh, there's a very big wharf in Sydney and they can't get any, um, any tenants for the buildings. Why don't we provide an idea for them and see if we can win the job? So um, Steve and I pr- produced this... Um, Plan, which was a story of the wharf, where you start off with your corner store, um, your milk bar, your flowers, and you went through to your breakfast place, your lunch place, and your night places. So we actually sold the idea to, um, I think it was the Walker Corp at the time. They loved the idea, um, and we said we would. We also took on the job of leasing it and finding the tenants, so that the, yeah. Um, <laughs> trouble (laughs) Um, anyway we did it Um, and was working with multiplex as well at the time so there were lots of constraints with the job in terms of dollars and 
deliveries. And that was your foray back to art. That was a foray, yeah. But it was really good fun working with Steve. And at that time, um, me not being in architecture for so many years, probably two decades, I really needed some help. And I met my partner at the time, Chris Manton, doing country road stores. And he was available to join us. And so we started the practice called Jan and Manton. Um, and it was quite interesting because um, in the first years of Jan and Manton, I had so many old clients from house days come to me and saying, who had kept clippings of my write-ups and saying, will you design a house for us? So that was really the beginnings of, um, of our practice, Jan and Manton. Um, then we changed the name to a more generic name like Jam Architects, which was our name, you know, r- reduced to J and M for Jam. Mm-hmm. And then about Jam actually went into doing um, a lot of development work, and we did a lot of retail. And I just found that I was churning work out and really not enjoying my life and mm-hmm. enjoying what I was doing. So about a year and a half, I decided to split and um, leave Jam, and I've, so I left Jam with. The na- I left, left Chris with the name, the website, everything, the phone number. And so it really is... I, I've started again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've started again with some pretty amazing mm-hmm. houses. I'm looking at a couple of houses in front of me, mm-hmm. and they're pretty substantial. One's in planning and one's mm-hmm. about to begin. Yes, it? and I've got one which is a traditional country house, which is um, almost... Com- it's halfway through. It's half complete. How do you tend to approach architecture... Well, what's terribly important to me is um, the feeling of the spaces when the, the building is built. I really like happy, friendly, warm spaces. And I really don't like my ego to be put into this. I, I, I really want the house to be the client's personality. Um, so it's really it's working with the client to find out what they want and them having the confidence in me in producing the spaces which I think will work for their personality, work for the site, work for the conditions and work for their budgets as well. Do you think architecture yeah. uh, at present is very mu- is too much driven by the architect wanting to make a statement rather than hearing no, the client? No, I think um, there's a place for everything mm-hmm. um, and I think there's there are clients who want a brand name, who want a particular architect to do something. And I think there are lots of other people who really want a space to be their own and not not a brand, not, not someone's ego. Um, and I, when I say ego, I don't mean that unkindly. I mean an architect's brand. They don't want it to be stamped. They want it to be their home and their space, not someone else's home space. Now, the other thing, Michael, that's very interesting about you, you've been into art in a big way for many, many years, mm-hmm. And furniture, obviously. So you're very much, in many of the houses you design, part of that process where you select art or help the owners choose their art, choose their furniture. Mm. That's quite rare. Well, look, it it can be. I think it depends on on the nature of the client and how much confidence and belief that they have in you and what you can deliver. Um, I've been very fortunate to have some clients who really do like the way I think and feel about things. Um, we, um, I was introduced to art probably in the mid-80s. Um, originally, my houses had no art at all on the walls. Um, why was that? You found it too overpowering? Or yeah, what? I just didn't... I wanted. I liked architecture for what it was, in a purer form than having decoration on the wall. Probably Guilford Bell was very similar. He didn't like art, and, you know, when, when he finished the house, he wouldn't didn't want 
you know, clients putting art up on the walls. Um, I suppose I shared those sentiments at the time, uh, but then a friend, uh, Henry Gillespie, introduced me to art and he said, would you be on um, a fundraising committee for ACCA? And um, I said, well, sure, why not? Let's do it. And through that connection, I met some really lovely, you know, people who supported art like Lottie Smorgan and Victor Smorgan um, whole, uh, who were really close, good friends and, and a whole, Vivian Knowles a whole lot of people mm. like that who, who were all interested in art and so I also started collecting art and when you start collecting art you meet artists and you become friends with artists and so you get drawn into um, this new world this exciting world of a different creativity What do you think uh, art does to an interior? Well, in my, in terms of the way I buy art, I like to buy young artists because I really like the energy that young art provides. Um, I love living with that energy. Um, in, so graffiti artists? Well, yes, that, that's a phase that I went through and we, we uh, went to quite a number of graffiti shows. Um, we um, I had a graffiti artist do work on, on, on one of the walls in the house. Um, there was a great graffiti show. Um, it was um, um, it was you invited to it by the by SMS or internet, and you all we all had to meet at the Canterbury station on the Alamine line, and so there was this 400, 500 people all congregated on a Sunday afternoon um, in the park on the Alamine line, and um, we all waited for an hour, and then we we're all ushered off to this dismantled, dysfunctional um, old building which these, um, uh, these, these artists had broken into and completely graffitied every square inch or square centimetre today of this building. Um, they had been there the day before and I think they were raided by the police. Um, they were all cleared out. But so it was really quite an exciting thing because there were all these very serious art collectors and people. So would you take a piece of the building? No, it was quite interesting. When we went to the building, the whole, you know, it was, it was on the urinals, on the walls. You didn't take anything, but there were lots of, there were stencil artists as well. You know, the stenciling was big at that time. So there were lots of stencils on the floor. So you'd pick up all these wonderful bits and pieces of reminders of what the building was. And um, I was standing out on the terrace, and one of the artists came out and said, oh, that's good. When the cops come, can you sound the alarm? <laughs> so anyway, that was really good fun. And one of the other things, I think there's lots of um, graffiti art in the, um, in the, um, in the sewers and in, in the waterworks of Melbourne, off the Yarra. And I think that's another experience. I think that would be quite exciting to go and do a tour of. Michael, where to? Where, where, where are you thinking? Where, what directions are you following at the moment? Well, at, at the moment, I'm really enjoying having a very small architecture practice or design practice, um, and I have. I'm working. I try to take on one really lovely job a year with people who we, you know, who are simpatico with me and me with them. Um, I like to work on on houses which have a a generous budget, which aren't. Constru- too constrained mm. um, and with people who have got generous minds and um, um, at the moment we I'm exploring um, I have a, some land up in Queensland which I'm looking at doing some buildings on and I'm looking at build it, bringing in an old Japanese timber house 
um, to erect on it. So, and I like from the Tokyo, idea, from Tokyo, or from somewhere in Japan. We're mm. just sourcing buildings mm. at the moment. So, I really like the idea of um, of finding an old building and renovating it. Mm. Um, I like the idea of getting some soul back into the to the land. Would you find a house locally? Yes. Well, there are lots of Queenslanders, but I actually don't want to live in a house. I want to live in a, an environment. So. Mm. What are the, one of the things that I'm looking at are old um, um, barns in Queensland, where you know just warehouses that are on on farms. Um, so to take that, you take the personality and you then renovate it sympathetically. Sympathetically, yeah. Um, it's sort of like the Spiegel tent. You know, when you walk into the Spiegel tent, there's this amazing space that you walk into and you it could have been there for decades or you know centuries it's got such a strong sense of being and purpose however it's a dis- it's like a tent it's dismantled and it's moved and it always has amazed me how a dismantled building can contain so much history. beauty and history and energy and yeah. excitement you know so that that's that's always been a part of what I like, what I think about. So, I'm just experimenting with um, of, of bring of getting a, a vacant block of land, bringing something with a soul, and then settling that soul onto the land, and then adding another element to it. Michael, would you do that? Would you take that idea and do that in the city? I can't see any reason not to. I think there are probably other constraints like town planning and um, setbacks and so on. Neighbours. Neighbours, yeah. Big sites. And if it's a small site, it'll be very difficult to do because you've got high controls. Mm. Um, So I would love to do it, but it'd have to be on a big site. (laughs) Michael, thanks so much for coming in today. It's been fascinating. You've got so many different arms and elements and, and, you know, stories. And, look, thanks very much for coming in. Well, I was very honoured to be invited, and um, thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Design with Stephen Crafty and this week's guest, Michael Jan, designer Michael Jan. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you.